you have your Bible, you can take those out at this time. We're headed into the book of Second Chronicles, so I'll give you a moment to turn to that. It's not a, uh, an often used book, but, but one that we're going through. Uh, two weeks ago, we started a new series on the life of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, so we're going to dip into that. Would you join me in prayer as we go to the Word this morning? Father, right now we pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our spirits, Lord, to receive from you your word. Lord, amidst all the things that have been going on in our life, we pray that you'd help us to pause for a moment to learn from you, that we would sit at your feet and listen to what you have to say to us. I pray that you would guide my mind and my heart and my lips to speak only what you've ordained, Lord. We pray then that you would teach us and draw us closer to you through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Second Chronicles chapter 29 this morning. As I said, we're going to the book of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king of Judah. At this time, the kingdom of Israel, the God's people, had been split in two. There was a northern kingdom that had 12, uh, excuse me, 10 tribes that was referred to as Israel. And then in the south, there was two tribes that had formed a country, and it was called Judah. And so Hezekiah had taken over after his father died, and he was now the king of Judah, which was where Jerusalem was. Now, Hezekiah, his dad was awful. His dad was not only somebody who worshipped idols, but also let and helped idolatry run rampant throughout the kingdom of Judah. It was so bad in King Ahaz, his father's life, that King Ahaz had sacrificed one of his sons on an altar to a foreign god. And so now one of his other sons, Hezekiah, becomes king. And the question is, is Hezekiah in his heart going to follow in his father's footsteps? Or is Hezekiah in his heart going to follow King David in his footsteps? King David was a man of upright heart. We find that in Hezekiah, we saw last time that he was right in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't care what anybody else thought. He cared, what does God think of me? He cared about his own heart. And so now we're going to see how that goes into how he was king, how he led the people and what it, what it caused in the life of the people there in Judah. So if you would, in Second Chronicles chapter 29, we'll begin in verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So I just want to stop right here real fast. Hezekiah becomes king. He's 25 years old. I don't know what you all were doing at 25 years old, but I know I wasn't being a king. You know, I was making probably a lot of dumb decisions at 25 years old. But this guy, when he becomes king at 25 years old, in the first month of the first year of his reign, he gets to business. His father had allowed the temple to be overrun with idolatry. In fact, invited in things from other gods to be worshipped in that place. And now it just stunk. It was filthy. It was awful filled with idolatry. And so the first thing Hezekiah does is say, we're going to go in and we're going to fix it. We're going to take it back to what God had demanded of us. We're going to go fix this place. And so he repairs the doors and opens them up. And then it says in verse 4, he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. 
For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or burned burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, wrath, the wrath of the Lord came upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he's made them an object of horror an astonishment and of hissing as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. What Hezekiah does, he first rounds up the Levites and the priests. The Levites were one of the tribes that were given charge to take care of the temple. And the priests were a, a certain part of that tribe that were given the priestly duty. So he calls them together and says, hey, look. When we look at the near past of our people, of our fathers, of our ancestors, they were sinful. In their hearts, they didn't care about God. They didn't love the relationship with him. And it turned out that they just did away with all that God had told them to do. But not us. They were sinful. We need to turn from those. I don't know about you, but it's hard sometimes to look at your ancestors and say they were in the wrong. Isn't it? It's hard to look at them because a lot of times you want to see them in a glowing light. I remember sometime uh, I, I love my parents. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was my basketball coach, my school teacher. I had a great relationship with him. I thought the world of my dad didn't want to dishonor him at all. And I remember one day this woman came up and she said, yeah, but you know, your dad had faults. But she didn't know my dad real well. And she wasn't making a specific point about my dad. What she was saying was, don't so worship your dad and what he's done that you forget about the fact that he too was a sinner. He needed Jesus. And the same way that he repented before God and lives now live in that repentance also. But don't think that your dad never did anything wrong. Sometimes the hardest things that you'll have to admit is the fact that your parents and your grandparents maybe didn't always walk in the ways of the Lord. And some of the things that they've delivered unto you in their training may not be things that are healthy for you and keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, don't think in the way that you have to act before God is somehow going to help protect your parents. If there was sin there. Pray for your parents but turn from that sin and go to God. Because that's what Hezekiah's got to do. He's got to say, you know what? I can't just keep doing the things that my dad did. I can't just keep doing the things that all of our ancestors did. Because if we look at the ramifications of that, it has led us to a place of being under God's wrath. You see, when we stand before Jesus, we're not going to be able to give the excuse of, well, my dad did it, and his dad did it, and his dad did it. He's going to look at us and say, but what about you? Where was your heart? And I love how Hezekiah comes and says, I have found in my heart, I need to make a covenant before the Lord. And I need to go on with these things. Well, let's look at some of the things that he does as he begins to restore. He's telling the Levites and the priests to do this. Uh, the Levites then arise and we're going to skip over to verse 15. He calls this group together. It says they gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. 
And they brought out all the uncleanliness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. For, uh, and then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. And they went into Hezekiah the king and said, hey, we've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the table for the showbread and all its utensils, all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Now, a lot of that may just seem like gibberish because we didn't we don't know anything about the temple. We don't know anything about utensils. We don't know anything what was going on. But let me explain what was going on. His dad, Ahaz, had taken all these furnishings, just like we have furnishings. We have a piano over here. We've got candles. We've got pews over over in the uh, over in the uh, fellowship hall. We've got things that we use for covered dish meals like plates. And we've got uh, serving spoons. Well, King Ahaz had taken all these beautiful things that were be, to be used for the worship of the Lord and c- had completely desecrated them, had taken them out, had, had removed them. It's kind of like um, sometimes I'll be out in our yard at our house and I'll be walking along and I'll be like, what, what is that? And I'll look down and it's like a funnel. Like how in the world did one of our kitchen funnels get outside? And then I'll be walking around and, and there's a serving spoon out there. I'm, how in the world did a serving spoon get outside? And I'll be walking a little bit more, and there will be a bowl outside. I think, how in the world did a bowl get outside? I'll give you three guesses as to how they got outside. But the thing is, those were meant to be used in the kitchen, right? And I can't take those things and just bring them right on into the house, and they're covered with with the the lovely red clay we have here in in North Carolina, and maybe they're they're dinged up a little bit. I can't just bring them in and then put them on the table and serve some meat. I can't just serve the veggies with that bowl, right? What do I got to do? I've got to cleanse it. And so I've taken all that's outside and I, to, in order to bring inside and be used for something that needs to be clean, I've got to cleanse it. Well, that's what's happening with Hezekiah and this house of the Lord. It says that it took him eight days just to clean the outside. And so if you imagine our church, it took him eight days just to prepare the outer grounds, uh, do the landscape, if you will. Um, They had to be outside. There was just so much filth and garbage. And then all the ritual ceremonies they would go through to, to consecrate those things. It took him eight days. There was just so much junk that was in that place. And then once they got on the inside of the temple, it took them eight more days just to clean out all the garbage that had taken place in that, uh, the things and the cleaning of the bowls and the, and the consecrate and just to make sure everything was put in place right before, the God, before God in the way that he wanted it put right before them. It took them 16 days, over two weeks to clean that, but it was so awful and filthy in the temple. So that's what they did. And they bring about the Hezekiah and they say, okay, we've got everything prepared and ready. And so it tells us what happens next in verse 20. Then Hezekiah, the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams and their blood was thrown against the altar. 
and they, uh, and they slaughtered the lambs and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly and they laid their hands on them and the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and liars according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeteers sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah, the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped then hezekiah said you have now consecrated yourselves to the lord come near bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the lord and the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings the number of the burnt offerings that assemble uh, that the assembly brought was 70 bulls a hundred rams and 200 lambs all these were a burnt offering to the lord and the consecrated offerings were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few and could not flay all the burnt offerings. So until other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people for the thing came about suddenly. So again, there's this thing that goes on that's hard for us to grasp because they're talking about doing all these sacrifices, burnt offerings, uh, thank offerings, drink offerings. And it's like, what in the world are those? But there were some things in there that I think were very similar to what we do in our worship. For instance, they brought together the musicians. They said, bring your instruments, bring the cymbals, bring the lyre, bring the harps, bring them together. Because when this happens, there's going to be cause for celebration. There's going to be a moment where we worship our God because we recognize what he's doing in us. And it says that as they came together, before they even sang, that they began to have these sacrifices. And it says that they were consecrating themselves. What it means was they were setting themselves apart to the Lord. What they are saying is no longer are we given over to just what we want to do and in and of the world by itself, but we are being called out to be the Lord's and his. And so they would give these sacrifices to say we are being set apart for God. And as well, did you notice how many sacrifices there were? It says that there were so many. There was hundreds of bulls. I've never owned a bull, but I've seen Mr. Ronald's. And if you had to go and slaughter 600 of them bulls, 
That is a job, okay? And not only involved is the fact that they are slaughtering them, but a lot of it was they were not only supposed to slaughter, but also cook them to help feed the people. There was a meal going on. We talk about covered dish meals. That's what they were doing. They were having a big time of seeing God's sacrifice for them and fellowshipping in the Lord. And it was so, so overwhelming in what was happening. It says they didn't have enough people to butcher the meat. They had to call in reinforcements to help cut the meat down to get everything cooked up for the big celebration that was hand. But what it said at the very end was that God had provided everything. He prepared everything because and it just happened all of a sudden. And don't you find that those are some of the most significant moments in your life before God? When you were going about your life and something happened, it may have been something, somebody may have died in your life. A, a job change might have happened. Weather circumstances maybe threw you for a loop. Something sudden happened and suddenly, bam, God has got your attention. And the question is, where is your heart going to land? For Hezekiah and the people, at 25 years old, bam, he's the king. He stepped forward and says, this is what God has led my heart to do. We need to turn towards him. Get rid of the idolatry that our fathers had. Say how sinful it is. Just call it what it is. And then we are with all of our hearts going to go and fling ourselves at God. And so they, they, they clean out the temple and they bring together these sacrifices and they were just throwing themselves towards God. You know what God did? He said, this happened because I was leading your hearts and so I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you. We have to recognize that they weren't just doing these things to do sacrifices. They weren't just cleaning up the church building to clean up the church building. Something critical had happened first it's the fact that their heart changed god had come and done a work in their heart and then that led to action usually that's flipped around in religiousness where we do a lot of action and we clean up the church and we go to church and we give money and we we do the this and the do the that and then we say hopefully that cleaned up my heart that's not the way God has demanded it. First, he wants your heart to be dealt with. He wants there to have this moment in your heart where you say, wait a second. This physical heart someday is going to stop pumping blood. These lungs are going to stop filling with air. This mind is going to stop thinking. These eyes are going to stop seeing. And this living, breathing machine that I have is going to end up six feet under. There is a problem. And spiritually in your heart, God comes to you and says, if you don't spiritually have your heart changed, become new, there is nothing that you can do to overcome death. You will die for your sin. And so what we see in the Old Testament is, yeah, bulls upon bulls and lambs upon lambs and just scores of animals being slaughtered and it's bloody and it's gruesome and it's it's terrifying. Why would God demand so much blood? Why would there be so much loss of life of these livestock? What God was doing was he wasn't saying that those lambs and those those bulls were covering their sins. It was a foreshadow of the fact that one day he would send his one and only son. He would walk in that same place of Jerusalem. He would be the one about whom they worshiped in the temple. That was for and that one lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He would be the one 
who would go and stretch out his arms on a cross and he was a bloody sacrificial mess. All that was happening in the temple on the altar with the blood and the splatter and the sacrifices, it was all a picture of what God would do to send his one and only son to die a bloody death for you. Why? Because if it's not Jesus, it is you. You're a sinful mess. You were born that way. Sure, go ahead and blame it on Adam and blame it on your dad. And yeah, they were sinful. But guess what? You are as well. And because of your sinful mess, God says you will die unless. He does that awesome work in your heart. Where you recognize I'm a sinful mess. That God has done something so spectacular in sending his son to die in my place. I deserve to die. But he sent his son who did not deserve to die. Who had no sin. So that when he dies for me and I then confess my sin, he moves in my heart. I confess my sin. He takes all of my junk and he put it upon Jesus and he died in my place as the sacrifice. So that his blood could come back to me and it consecrates me. It sets me apart. And now I'm a new man. I've got a new heart. I am pure and I am holy before God. Not because I have done the cleaning up of this temple. It's because he first cleaned up my heart. And now I can live before him clean. Now I need to clean out this temple. Now I need to make sure that I'm not allowing idolatry. And now I need to make sure that he is going through the process of refining me to look like Jesus Christ. Because in his eyes, I look like Jesus Christ. When you come to faith, you look like Jesus. You stand before God, pure and holy. Your heart's been changed. When I first moved out here, I had a car. It was this great Ford Taurus gold. And if I came to visit you or we met somewhere, you saw me driving up in that thing. And I, I love that thing. I'd zip around all over the place. And, um, and, and, and there was one day I was driving and it just... I mean, it just lost its soul. There's no better way to say it. And so I took it into the Wood Brothers and I said, Brothers, I, I got a problem. I don't know enough about cars to, to do much more than fix a flat. So I need you to take a look at this thing. So I get a, uh, I get a call later from Danny. He says, this, this doesn't look good. He says, we're going to have to rebuild the engine on this thing. We're going to have to get into the heart of it. Because it won't go anymore. And I remember the night at Bible study, he came, he says, you want to see your car? I've been working. I said, sure. I just figured he'd kind of show me a shot of the engine, which he did in parts all over his garage. He had taken that thing completely apart and then he rebuilt it just right. And I got on the road and went off on my way and I went back to visiting, went back to going through the McDonald's drive through whatever I need to do in my go car I, I was doing. Until that day I was driving on the road again and it lost its soul. And I took it back to the Wood Brothers and I said, brothers, uh, here's this car. And they took a look inside and they said, you know what? The same thing has happened. You see, what was wrong, you could go and take apart that heart every time as much as you wanted. But the problem was the same problem was going to be there every time when it got into the real world. 
It was going to go, but because its heart was already broken, there was something in the inside that no matter how many times you tried to put that same heart together, it would always fail. And so we had a a real heart-to-heart in real life with those brothers, and they said, you know what? You know what would probably be best? You either have to get an absolutely new engine or, brother, just go get a new car. Get one with a heart that works. Get one that's ready to go. Get one where you don't have to go back and try to rebuild it because it's not going to work. And obviously the car I got now, it's someday is going to die. But I, I bring that around to this illustration to say this. If you're just going to try to go and rebuild the heart that you have that's full of sin and try to do churchy things and go to Sunday school, that's not going to fix your heart. It's like taking it in for a rebuild, taking it apart and putting it back together. It looks good for a little while, but when you get down into the valleys of life, it's actually not whole. It's still full of sin. It's just going to continue to take you to soulless, lifeless places that are lonely, empty, and full of corruption. Those brothers gave me advice. They said, you got to get a new heart, either one in this car or go get a new car. For Jesus, he comes and looks at you and says, brother or sister, you must, you must have a new heart. And the only way to get that heart is for him to come in and as only he can do, do that miracle of surgery in you where he says in Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. He gives you a brand new heart. And then the beautiful thing in that is after you have that new engine, that new spiritual engine, and Jesus has made that new in you, yeah, then you go about going to church. And you go about feeding the poor and checking in on the widows and the shut-ins. You do those things, but you're not doing those things to try to accomplish something before God. You do those things because you recognize that God did a work of changing your heart. And now you can't do anything but go and do whatever he says because you're just worshiping him. That's what your life is to be about, worshiping God. Something happened in Hezekiah's heart where he just said, not only for me, I'm going to go and take my entire nation to God and say, change our hearts and now we will worship you with everything that we got. And that's why I love Hezekiah. Because it's also an encouragement to me to say, you know what, Jason? God's done a change in my heart. And as I look through every day of my life. I'm to be worshiping him. But what I love about Hezekiah is he went to the people that he was responsible for and those that he loved. And he said, hey gather round. We need a new heart before our Lord. And then we need to go and worship him with everything that we've got. And it says that God provided for them because he saw what had happened in their hearts. And for you and for me, it must start with a complete change of our heart when we confess our sins and come to faith. And he gives you that new heart. And then once you have that, guess what? You have a responsibility Most all of you have somebody that you have charge over, you're taken care of, you're in relationship with, and you as an individual get the opportunity to call other people with you to say, hey, look, let God change our hearts and then let's go worship him with everything that we have. 
Whatever he tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. Parents, you're in charge of your kids. I can already see things in my kids where I know I had sin in my life and I see them doing the same things and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. My job is to go to them and say, take your heart to Jesus. Be new in him. And now this is what Jesus calls us to do. We've got to keep an eye on our kids. You know why? Because there's a great enemy that wants their heart too. If you've been given kingship in your house, protect those kids. Go take them to Jesus. If you have a a role somewhere in life, go take the people that you have in your charge, take them to Jesus. You've got a friend, take that friend and say, let's go to Jesus. But as he works in your heart, let that play out with worship. But don't think that worship plays out to a new heart. It's different. If God has never done a work on your heart, don't go driving your spiritual car thinking it's going to make it. You will get to that gate and Jesus will say, it's not what I wanted. Jesus spent his own blood to buy you out of slavery and sin and death. So that when you stand before him and you say, well, I bought life with this money, with this spirituality, with these actions, just being a good guy in Johnson County, he's going to say that wasn't enough. I paid for you with my own blood. Today, as we close, maybe the Lord's been coming to you and saying, where's your heart? If you've never known Jesus before, there's there's one good thing that you can do. Cry out to the living God and say, please change my heart. And as he convicts you of your sin, he, he reveals to you how wicked you've been and how, 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 how sinful you are. He doesn't do that just to make fun of you or make you feel awkward. He does that because he wants to save you. So take your heart. Say, Lord, here's my old heart. Would you give me a new one? And he does this miracle of giving you new life. Let him give you a new life today. And if you're in Jesus Christ, if he has done that work of regeneration and given you that new heart, then your your life is to be spent saying, okay, with this new heart, how do you want me to beat for you? How do you want me to walk for you? How do you want me to think for you? What can I do for you, Jesus? And you know what that looks like? Worship. Worship. So as we close, I'm going to I'm going to pray. I invite you to pray with me. And then after that, we're also going to have a song uh, sung for us that's closed us. And at any point during that time, while I'm praying or while the song is being sung by Miss Stacy, uh, while that's going on, that is our call to the altar. But that is not just a call to do something, a spiritual action. That is a call to place our hearts before the Lord. I don't care if you do it in your seat or do it up front. But come to the Lord. Let it be a heart change. And then let that result in action change in your life. Come and give your heart to the Lord. Father, we come and we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the example that happened in, in King Hezekiah and the people that day, in those days. We pray that you would cause us to have a change in our hearts where we would be given over you to consecrated to you and your purposes. And that it might change the way that we think and act it might 
change the way which we understand your grace. That we're not earning salvation. We're just worshiping you for the salvation you've already given us. So, Father, would you take those who maybe at this moment for the first time in their lives are bringing their hearts to you? Lord, I pray that you would save that soul. You've paid for their sin. and You've called them into eternal life, promising them resurrection. And, Lord, for those who are Christians who have been reverting back just doing things to try to earn your love or to stay out of trouble. Lord, I pray that they would come and just submit to you and to, to learn to operate in grace, to understand that they're saved, but now everything they do is worship, whether at work or at church or at home, whatever it is, Lord, that we are worshiping you at all times, thanking you for what you've done. We're thankful, Lord, that we don't need to spend the blood of bulls and goats and lambs anymore. You already spent the blood of Jesus for us, and so we forever We'll praise you for sacrificing the Lamb of God on our behalf. Lord, we look expectantly to you, asking that you continue to do a miracle in us, that it would result in the actions that are outside of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Miss Stacy comes and sings. I encourage you just to come and bring your junk, bring your sin, and then call out to the Lord and worship and join her together as she sings.
Oh, 